Oh, Father, God, we love you. Thank you for, uh, God, thank you for your creation. Thank you for your faithfulness. God, thank you for the covenants that you made to the patriarchs and how steadfastly and faithfully you've conducted yourself towards those covenants. God, we ask you right now as a room full of Gentiles, God, that you would remember the promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, that you would make him the father of many Gentiles. You would bring many Gentiles to uh, follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to, to pledge their allegiance to him with all of their heart and mind and soul and strength, that they would love him and follow him and honor him, forsaking the gods and the idols of their own nations. So God, we ask you tonight that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation. God, open our minds to the scripture. Open our minds, Father. Send us the grace of the Holy Spirit today. Holy Spirit, come and bear witness of the truth, the gospel, and strengthen us in our inner man. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so session four, um, repentance and faith. So um, review is, you know, we talked about what what is the biblical view of, what? how does the Bible present reality to us and it presents it? to us in, in, in these terms, the heavens and the earth, and then it presents this age and the age to come. So we have the heavens and the earth, two real places, and then we have this age and the age to come with no, there's no blurring of the two. One of them is clearly defined by the curse and, uh, and God obviously sustaining mankind because he's kind and he's patient and merciful. But at the same time, we have uh, we have the tension of knowing that the age to come is going to appear, and it's not going to be. There's not. There's. There's no talk of a of a of the kingdom of God increasing slowly. There's no talk of of of, of these things and the and the uh, the day of the Lord happening as a progression of events. It's it's going to be suddenly like lightning that flashes from one end of the sky to the other. Like Josh Garrels. You guys know Josh Garrels? I mean, with Josh, Josh Garrels is the best. But um, he's got the line in Resistance. He says, the liberation will not be televised when it arrives like lightning in the skies. It's the best line. <coughs> so uh, then, so we got to last week, and, the, and, and so the the... the the scriptures, one of the reasons why it's difficult to understand is because it's organized around covenants, right? So we just talked last week about how the covenants are organized and what they, what they mean and what the language of the covenants is and what they're pointing to. So today we're, we're going to really get to the really where the New Testament comes in. So up until now, we're kind of to what every Jew understood. Well, there was... It, it's it's not entirely true. There, so there was diversity in the first century, for sure. It was complicated. 
But um, this was, it was common and it was well known, but there was a lot of alternatives. Um, so to begin with point one, the suffering before the glory. So the Messiah had to suffer before entering his glory. So this was a framework that was, it was, uh, it was known later as the mystery of the Messiah. The mystery of the Messiah was that the Messiah had to suffer. And so we're going to talk about how they interpreted the suffering and at least one of the ways they interpreted the suffering. Uh, so like Hebrews 9, 27, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. So there's a suffering and then there's a bringing of salvation. Likewise, First Peter, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched carefully and they investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious. And set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Because this is the framework that the apostles were searching for. The, what's the framework for the coming suffering and for the coming deliverance? And he goes, so we know about the suffering now. So now put all of your hope in the glories to come. Uh, Luke 24 how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? So the problem is a misunderstanding of the law and the prophets. Why there was a misunderstanding about the suffering of the Messiah. This is largely the Lord's doing, but we'll talk about that. Um, so the context for his suffering... Uh, is based on just the simple fact of, of man's depravity. So the suffering before the glory and the framework for the, that the Messiah needed to suffer before his glory was um, uh, the depravity of man. And the depravity of man, like it said in Genesis 6, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. So this is God's estimation, his, his, uh, his evaluation of the human heart. And then after the flood, so that's before the flood, after the flood, never again will I curse the ground because of all humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from its youth or from their childhood. Yeah, yeah man. Hey, I, I was talking to our kind of guy who was talking about he couldn't believe that because Jesus chooses to come live inside of us, and how could you choose to live inside of an evil vessel? And I didn't, I, I didn't have a word to say. Really. Um, well. Oh man, I mean, it's just, I think the simple answer is just the mercy of God, right? Because obviously Jesus is not humiliating himself by sending his spirit to dwell with us. Then 
we don't really have much of an expression of the mercy of God. We just have an expression of our awesomeness and God acknowledging it. So you have to have real depravity to have real mercy. And uh, it's never more difficult than when you're a parent because you watch your kids grow up and uh, nothing inside of you wants to believe that cute little Timmy is like prone to everything that you are. And it's not a you know, parenting flaw when it starts to manifest. It's just this is the way it is. And so, but I mean, it's the testimony of all the scriptures. There's no, there's no other testimony in the Bible of the condition of the human heart. And now, now, you know, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we put to death the deeds of our flesh. But, but, but it's like the whole framework for, like the word in Greek for deny yourself, like in Matthew 16, where he says, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be crucified. If you want to, and I'm going to be raised from the dead, if you want to come after me, if you want to be raised from the dead, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And the word deny yourself just means say no to yourself. So this makes sense to everybody because of the concept of self-control and things like that. But just begs, I mean, like the second greater question, like, why do you have to say no to yourself as a way of life if what's inside of you is awesome? Why not say yes to yourself? But we have to say no to ourselves until the end. This is faith. Do you think that with sort of the mind of Christ and the Spirit coming and dwelling in us, like maybe people confuse that as like they think it's them, but it's really like the goodness of God? You know what I'm saying? What's, well, I mean, those are, that's a, so those are like really, we think of those concepts like particularly in the movement where we're kind of most of us are familiar with. They think of those concepts very differently than Paul does. So those are uh, in context, Paul's simply saying that there's these false apostles and there's us look at the way we're living. We have the mind of Christ because we're actually living like Jesus did. He's saying we understand what Jesus esteems because we're laying down our lives for people. And the other guys are just trying to collect money and Lord it over you. So it's a plural, and it's not generally body of Christ. It's we have the mind of Christ. That's why you should listen to us. We're actually a living witness and testimony to you of what God's like, just like Messiah was. So um, as far as the rest, I mean, I mean, this is cruel. I mean, I just, I have a lot of friends and, and loved ones think differently, and I just pray, and when the grace of God touches them and, they want to know, like, I can talk to them more, but people just don't take this stuff and shove down their throat. Take away their, first took away their heaven, and then their kingdom, then their new covenant, and then you take away their renewed self. Gonna, yeah, seriously, you're going to get slapped in the face, so it's kind of the way it works. Um, so man's... Uh, so let's skip there. Man's desire for self, man's desire for self-governance and boasting. So this is kind of the early explanation of what is up with man. Like, what's the condition? How does God explain why He has to put a curse on on our bodies, on the race, on creation? And so, like Genesis three. Oh mercy, this is tough. Um, Genesis 3, serpent said to the woman, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Right? You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. 
And when the woman saw the fruit, that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. So, so I just, I just want to highlight that if you read the story all the way through, it doesn't, there's, I, I understand this is a lot more common to view it this way, but it doesn't say that those things were bad. Like, in fact, these are the exact things that God was trying to give him. Right? God was walking around in the garden going, Son, this tree good, this tree bad. This is good, this is bad, son. And he was educating him, which inherently implies the imparting being like God. If you're educated by God bodily and personally, you're going to become like God. And so the point wasn't, oh, he wanted to be like God. But now this is like the whole point, right? Because we've got to, we want to be like God. God says, I'm this way, so you should be that way. And, and so the point isn't, oh, how dare they want to be like God? Or how dare they want to know right from wrong? So the point is, is that that's what God was doing. But Adam and Eve were simply ignorant of the condition of the human heart. The condition of everybody you see throughout your day especially the person that you see when you walk by the mirror, is that you're infinitely prone to love and serve yourself at the expense of others. And Adam and Eve didn't know that. So the serpent was simply tempting them to get the information God was imparting, but to trust in themselves to walk out their calling. All right, pretty straightforward. It didn't seem like rocket science and but the inclusion was is like psalms 90 you turn men back to the dust and you say return O children of men we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we've been dismayed you placed our iniquities before you so this was iniquitous to god these were iniquities that he placed before him and in his wrath he sent us back to the dust he said this is not okay this is not going to fly. I'm going to put a discipline on the human race, and we'll deal with it later. But um, And then you have like uh, a good example uh, is Deuteronomy 8. All the commandments that I'm commanding you today shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land. And I want you to remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Saying, paying attention, they're at the Jordan, they're about to cross over. He did it so that he might humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart. So it's, uh, the, the, uh, the Septuagint translates that, that the things in your heart might be made manifest. Because so, sometimes the Hebrew translation kind of implies that God's looking for information. But uh, So I like the Septuagint translation of that, that the things in your heart might be manifest whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God actually let them be hungry. To, oh, no, that's the next verse, right? Um, so the next verse says that he, the way he humbled them was he let them be hungry. I forgot to put the, the, the punchline. So the point is, Hunger and, not, and having a lack of food was part of the curse. And so God explains that he put them through this because it showed and it revealed what was actually secret in the heart. 
And so it's like if Adam and Eve would have known this, what's in the heart and the serpent comes. And this is God's hope for this age is that we would all learn this. And the serpent comes and goes, hey, I understand you have a calling to subdue and multiply and to expand the garden and to make the earth beautiful. So I think you're pretty awesome. And I think that you just need the information and you can go do it. And, uh, and so they fell for it, not understanding how prone they are to what God knows that we're prone to. And so they just said, and so God basically put a curse on the earth so that, so, and, and this is why we talked about a couple of weeks ago, like we love to define ourselves when everything's awesome and we have tons of money in the bank and everybody's being nice to us. But God wants us to know reality based on when we're hungry when our bodies are hurting and when people are mean to us, because those are the three main aspects of the curse. Strife, hunger, or difficulty in providing for your family, and body of death. And so when those things happen, then we find out who we are, and then we realize that, whoa, situation is serious. And that's where you have God presenting a solution to the situation. Patrick, do you still have a question, man? Yeah, just, uh, so just real quick, touching on your talking about this, the way it, was, it, it will be, um, speaking to like, yeah. the age you come, so that we have, um, I guess my question is, is if that's the way it will be, why, why didn't he make it that, that the way to begin with? Right. Well, it was that way to begin with. Okay. But, Right now, we're in a period, the human race is under a period of discipline because the discipline itself tests to see if faith is authentic. Okay, so then how do we won't fail again? That's a good point. We, I, I think that in the age to come, we're going to continue being sustained by our faith, by our putting our trust in God. And so not the reason why boasting is excluded from the age to come, which we're going to get to, and the reason why confidence in your flesh is not allowed in the age to come is because we would do that again. So essentially it's like, hey, Adam and Eve didn't get a chance to screw up. But now that humanity has had a chance to screw up and we know... Exactly. The so the, the point is, is that you would get to the age to come and let's say there were a serpent again in the age to come. He says, Patrick, hey... I understand God's given you a commission to look after, you know, Shanghai. And I got, I, you know, I can give you this and you can just kind of skip going to Jerusalem for your monthly visit to go hang with the Messiah. And, and hopefully you're going to go, are you freaking kidding? <laughs> yeah. Do, do you, do you not know what I'm prone to? And, uh, and obviously without a body of death, it's, you're not, your inclinations aren't, you know, aren't as strengthened as they are now where we just struggle and it's hard to break free of it. Just real quick, so does that mean that Adam and Eve, they didn't have, I guess they, they didn't have the fleshly... They didn't have a body of death. They had an eternal body. So what caused them to want something they couldn't have? It's just the, it, they, they just wanted to boast in themselves. So this is the, this is the, the point of that is they wanted to boast in themselves. They wanted self-governance. They wanted to do it themselves so they could boast in themselves. So, uh, point three. Y'all can be interceding under your breath that we make it through these notes before midnight. 
Um, point three, Torah entrusted. So in this framework, the Torah is entrusted to Israel as a tutor. So like Paul said, the law became our tutor to lead us to Christ. Not, not, it doesn't just stop there. So that we might be justified by faith. So justification isn't a new test. Justification by faith isn't a New Testament idea. The law was tutoring them in the pattern that was supposed to lead them to justification by faith. Like he said, Timothy, the law is good if one uses it properly. So let's just do a real brief survey, uh, Old Testament survey of the grace of God. Um, so depending on how you, I mean, if you include the nouns and the adjective like gracious. The word grace in the noun and adjectival forms actually appears more times in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. So this is not like some grand thing that just came on the scene that everybody's like, what's this? God's nice, amazing. This is like the way that he revealed himself from the beginning. So like Exodus 33, and, and John 1 is usually where that comes from, right? Where... Uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, the, I mean, I don't have that here, but the, but the translation is, is kind of silly on that because the word but is actually the word chi in Greek, which is, means and. And it can be translated but if there's a really clear contrast, but it's the softest contrast that exists, and it usually should be translated and. And so the, the point of that passage all of John 1 is essentially um, is essentially just explaining he's making real heavy use of uh, what's called uh, language from the Targums in Israel most Jews didn't speak Hebrew anymore um, and so at the synagogue they would read the Torah because they still viewed that it was the sacred language and then someone would translate it into Aramaic and then eventually they wrote down the Aramaic translations. So we have them. They're called Targums. And uh, the Targums have um, a few little explanatory things inserted into the, into the Old Testament to explain when the Hebrewisms get lost in translation. And so John makes extensive use of the Targums, which probably implies – I've read a lot of really good stuff lately, scholars that, that say that Contrary to, you know, it's commonly accepted right now, John may very well be the most Jewish of all the Gospels, not the most Greek. And because the number of Targum references, and the Targums weren't used in the diaspora, in the exile. They were only used in Israel. And so the, the really, really frequent use of the Targums is like only the Jews in the synagogue who spoke Aramaic would have understood all of these references. And so what he's doing, what he seems to be doing in John, John 1 is he's working through the encounter with Moses. And so God counters Moses in Exodus 33. First, Moses asks God, he says, I pray if I have found grace, the, the Greek word in the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation is kadis, in your sight, show me your way that I might know you and that I might find Kadis in your sight. So, right, if I have found Kadis in your sight, then show me your way. 
that I might know you and that I might have Cadiz in your sight. And so, and I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And so, that's why the point in John one sixteen isn't. I mean, it's just simply it's 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 a reference to Ezekiel thirty three. So, and of his fullness we all received grace for grace. In Exodus thirty three. It's Exodus thirty three, right? Uh, no, in, in John one. In John. Oh yeah, no, in, in Exodus. So he's just referencing Exodus thirty three, where he says we received grace for grace when God passed in front of Moses, which is the next passage where he says. The Lord God passed in front of him and proclaimed, next passage of Exodus, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeping loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. You guys know that. And so he just references it again in John 1, 14, where he says, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, the glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you read through John 1, all he's doing is he's working through Jesus is the same one who appeared to Abraham. It's verse 1 through 5. And he's the same one who appeared to Moses. This is why we can trust him. So this, this is the, the, the logic of John 1. I, I should probably explain that better, but I don't have time. So then he said... Um, uh, if I have found grace in your sight. So this is the point. So grace appears so many times in the Old Testament. It's always, it's always just, it's a simple link between the grace of God and God's willingness to forgive sinners. This is from the Old Testament. And so like you have, uh, now if I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we're stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Second Kings, but the Lord was gracious to them and he had compassion. He showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Referencing when he, when he forgave their sin in the wilderness. Nehemiah 9, uh, but you're a God ready to forgive. You're gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to forgive. Likewise, uh, <clears throat> Psalm 27 Hear me, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. The Lord is gracious and merciful, Psalm 145. Isaiah 30, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show you mercy. <clears throat> for he's the God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more, and he will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry as soon as he hears it. He will answer you. So God gives them the tutor of the Torah to explain that he's gracious and to explain being justified by faith. And so we're going to work through a couple of the you know, uh, mechanics of what he, the way they lived their life that was a tutor for them to walk in the grace of God. So the tutor of the Passover. <clears throat> like Luke 22 and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So the Passover was still viewed um, in context to the kingdom of God. And uh, 
like you have the diagram. So you have uh, what happened was is that God made a promise to Abraham, and, and at the beginning of Exodus, it said that Yahweh remembered his promise to Abraham, and so he visited the children of Israel in Egypt, remembering his promise to Abraham. And so then he gives them a command of the, of the lamb, right, of the paschal lamb. And so they have to sacrifice the lamb, they have to take the blood, put it on the doorpost, and um, and then he 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 gives them the command in context because if you ask an Israelite and you know what the Passover is about, if you would have asked one of them, they don't think it's about the lamb. Like they think it's about the angel of death is about to appear, and and Yahweh sent Moses and he told us he's going to save us from it. We just have to put the blood on our doorstep. They, they, they think it's largely about the wrath of God being revealed and God showing mercy to them because of the wrath. So the wrath of God's coming on the land, but I'm going to make a way for you if you have faith in me. I heard a rabbi say recently, uh, I, I, can't, I can't vouch for this because I haven't looked into it myself, but that, um, that, that, uh, that lambs were actually pretty sacred in Egypt that they actually didn't sacrifice lambs in Egypt because they're very sacred. So they could have actually been imprisoned or killed just for sacrificing the lamb. And so it was a kind of a double issue of, uh, of faith. Because when God says, I'm going to liberate you, but you got to do this thing that's really going to take these guys off, test the faith pretty good. And so he warns them about the wrath of God that's coming and then he commands them, like uh, Exodus 12 is where it's laid out. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you, where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you. So from the very beginning, it was commanded to be a memorial that they would keep. I want you to remember what I'm teaching you here. Wrath of God, I make a way for you to be saved from it. Wrath of God, I make a way. And then uh, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood and the basin. Put some on the blood of the top on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. So this is the other part of the command. Put the blood on your door and stay in your house. Do not leave the house. Then he says, do this as a memorial for all of your generations. <clears throat> and then, uh, so what's interesting about the Passover is that the Passover technically doesn't have any reference to sin. This is kind of before the sacrificial system is in place. Where they understand there's a sacrifice given as a substitute. This is simply to understand the life of the lamb will save your life. That lamb's life saves your life. That's basically the only thing they understand about it. No reference to the forgiveness of sin at all. 
So then, but then after that, in the wilderness, they introduced the sacrificial system. And um, so you have, like in Leviticus 20, so I'm going to read through uh, just a few of the references and give some clarification, and then we'll get to Hebrews 9 and 10, which is kind of the question that you're all probably having as we read through these. But, but we want to be able to read through these straightforward and not have to revise them. Um, so, and do this, and do with this bull, just as he did with the bull for the sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for the community, and they will be forgiven. Real forgiveness in the sacrificial system. Real forgiveness happens. Leviticus 16, uh, this is the uh, Day of Atonement. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And he will send the goat away in the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man will release it in the wilderness. So you, the, it's the laying on of both hands. Um, and so likewise in Leviticus 1, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, this particular one is actually a sin offering. You're to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf. So like there's a rabbinic tradition that gets passed down, oral tradition, and they have explained what it is uh, that actually took place on, in that ceremony. And So uh, Alfred Edersheim in the, the temple, its ministry and services, the time of Jesus Christ, explains that in all private sacrifices except firstlings, tithes, and the paschal lamb, hands were laid on, and while doing so, the following prayer was repeated. I'm sure it's paraphrased, but this is the gist of it. I entreat, O Jehovah, I have sinned, I have done perversely, I have rebelled, I have committed, naming the sin, the trespass, or in case of a burnt offering, the breach or the of positive or negative command, but I return in repentance, let this be for my atonement. Right? So these are voluntary free will offerings. When you sin, do this and you will be forgiven. And so the mechanic is, you go out to the herd when you sin against God. You go out to the herd, you bring a goat, you bring a whatever, you lay your hands on it. You confess your sin, acknowledging your iniquity. You plead with God for mercy, and you commit to Him to turn away from the sin and to not do it anymore. And so, crazy thing is that, so to introduce the idea of grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sin as a New Testament idea that didn't happen until after the time of Jesus, just like crazy, this was a way of life that they actually had real sin forgiven. Now, Hebrews, Hebrews 10 is, is usually a passage that gets quoted, but what about Hebrews 10, 4? And so let's just work through this. Like you mentioned it last week, it's a good question. So let's, let's work through this real quickly, Hebrews 9, 25 and following. So referencing, so he's contrasting the Messiah's sacrifice as a, and his priesthood with the Day of Atonement ritual, right? Which is once a year. And so he did not enter to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the sanctuary year after year with blood that is not his own. 
For then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the consummation of the ages to put away sin by his sacrifice. So put away sin is not common language for to pardon sin. To put away sin, this is, just above this is when he quotes the new covenant promise. And he just said, what's going to happen is I'm going to write my law on their hearts and on their mind, and they won't sin against me anymore. Right? Ezekiel 36, I will give them a heart of flesh and take remove their heart of stone. And I will, uh, Jeremiah 32, and I will put the fear of me inside of them so that they will only obey me continually. And so the logic is, that's obviously not happening in the Day of Atonement ritual. So yeah, real sin's being forgiven, but it's not doing away with sin because we keep coming back every year. Because people are still sinning. It's logic. So let me finish this, Jen, and then you can ask your question because this might answer your question. And just as people are appointed to die once and then to face judgment, so also after Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. For the law possesses a shadow of the good things to come, but not the reality itself, and is therefore completely unable, by the same sacrifices offered continually year after year, to perfect those who come to worship. To perfect. Same framework, right? To make them not sin anymore. It's obviously not happening because... They're coming back every year. That means they sin during that year. So he's super logic, super logical what he's saying. For otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Like wouldn't the Day of Atonement have stopped a long time ago if those sacrifices could actually bring about what God promised in the New Covenant? Since the worshipers would have been purified once for all and not and so have no further consciousness of sin. That just means they wouldn't need to go and confess their sin anymore. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. And God ordained it. God ordained a reminder that the new covenant was not among them because they're still sinning. For the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. You understand? You know what I'm saying? It it cannot do away sin with sin forever. There needed to be a superior sacrifice and something superior than an annual celebration where he just keeps forgiving sin, but the worshipers are not perfected. So there had to be something else to come because he promised that they would come when they would never turn away from him again. And so he's just pointing to the logic. If he said that's going to happen, it required something more than, than the Day of Atonement. Does that make sense? Mostly, I just am curious when it says, but now he has appeared once for all at consummation of the ages put away sin by his sacrifice. Then. So he's appeared once for all. So we. But him coming was the consummation of the ages. No. Right. Well, see, this is the difficult thing about the, the apostolic witness. And it's, it's just, you know, we just have to deal with it. Just got to deal with the fact is, like I, I said it before. But they thought Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And so they always acted as though he was. And they always wrote as though he was. 
over and over again, you know, those, you know, us uh, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, these things, you know, when Peter stands up in Acts 2 and he goes, in the last days, I'll pour my spirit. He's not inaugurating the last days. He literally thinks the day of the Lord is about to happen. And so do all the audience, by the way. All the congregation thinks the same because they only repent because they're horrified for their lives that the Messiah is going to come back and avenge his own name because they crucified him. And so they repent. It says they were pierced to the heart and they said, what do we do if this is true? Because he, he closed with Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is come sit at my right hand until, you read the rest of Psalm 110, until the day of my wrath when you filled the earth or you filled the land with corpses. So they're thinking, oh mercy. And so they, they simply think it is that time. And so the, the delay, like, like the delay framework is laid out really clearly in Passover, but they're just not thinking like that, right? Like Paul explained it, he just didn't probably, I don't know if he understood how long the delay was at this point, but 1 Corinthians 11, right? He says that we celebrate the Passover and what we do with the Passover is we proclaim his death until he comes. So it's, it's an eschatological framework for the Passover. We're proclaiming the lamb until the wrath comes. So they're not offering, they're not still sacrificing after Jesus, I mean... They were until Jesus did away with it, the destruction of the temple. Yeah, they were still doing it, but it was no, just... But then it stopped, because that's what he's referencing. Yeah. Like that's why, okay. Yeah. 70 AD.